the African Perspective. We're broadcasting to you live from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, and we're on the frequency 15235 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. Online, it's www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi, driving the show with Onelin Sinsi, Tracy Boomgaard, and Musi Budimakura. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. Calls mount for South Africa's Home Affairs Minister to resign following sex tape. Namibia scraps black ownership stake requirement for mining exploration license. Zimbabwe profits claim Zimbabwe profit claims to have found the cure for HIV and cancer. And in economics news, the latest uh, Mo Ibrahim index of African governance has warned that African nations are failing to create enough jobs for the youth. And lastly, in sport, South African runners set to compete at this weekend's New York City Marathon. But first, the news with Onilentinsky. Thank you, Samara. Hundreds of people, majority of them youths, have been marching on the streets of Cameroon's economic hub, asking President Paul Bea to step down immediately. Anti-riot police have arrested at least three people, um, including Doki Michel, a lawyer who defended Maurice Kamto, the man who claims he won the October 7 people's election in Cameroon. The protesters are asking Bia to immediately hand power to Maurice Kamto, promising that they he will be one of them and we will be of the people that are respected. Moki Kinzeka has more. The Constitutional Council rejected the petition and Kamto, who had earlier claimed victory, announced what he called a national resistance program to the electoral hold-up in perspective to President Paul Bia's inauguration in December in a date that has not been announced. Ivaha Diboa, governor of the littoral region of Cameroon, where Douala is found, says he will never tolerate any disorder in his administrative area and anyone who wants to create disorder will face the heavy arm of the law. A woman's suicide bomber has blown herself up near a police vehicle in the center of Tunisia's capital. Ministry spokesperson says that all but one of the casualties were police. Since the 2011 uprising that toppled Zine al Abidine Ben Ali, jihadist attacks in Tunisia have killed dozens of members of the security force in Taurus. Tor- the country has been under a state of emergency since November 2015, when an RCC claimed in Tunis killed 12 presidential guards. Algeria's frail president, Abdelaziz Bouteflika, in power since 1999, will stand in power for a fourth term at elections. Uh, in the National Liberation Front, Chief Jamal Uzla Abbas said Bouteflika, who suffered a stroke in 2013, will be a candidate at the vote as for the vote set for April 2019. 81-year-old Bouteflika has yet to officially announce his, his standing in. 
Indonesia's uh, research uh, and rescue team says it's likely that all 189 on board at a line flight that crashed earlier have died. Flight JT610 and route to Bangkok, Penang, lost contact with ground control a few minutes after takeoff in the capital Jakarta and was last tracked crossing the Java Sea, the Boeing 737 MAX 8. A brand new uh, plane is believed to have sunk after crashing. Lion SEO Edward Sirate. If the plane was broken, it would have been impossible to release the plane to fly from Denpasar. But as we know, moving objects are vulnerable by the time the aircraft is landing. However, when we received the flight crew's report, we immediately fixed the problem. And lastly, Zimbabwe Association of Doctors for Human Rights has issued a 72-hour ultimatum to a prophet who claims to have found an HIV and cancer cure. Prophet Walter Magaya of the Prophetic Healing Ministry made the announcement during the church's five-year anniversary commemoration in Harare. He says the the drug is working, but Zimbabwe's Association of Doctors for Human Rights warns that unproven claims of will bring about deadly consequences for people in the country. Secretary General of the ZADHR, Dr. Evans Mustara. We wanted to uh, engage the the ministry and the NACI first to uh, hear their their position. Uh, But uh, as an association, we are saying in less than 72 hours, I'm sure he should have come up with a, with a statement uh, live on TV or on his identity to refute the claims, that the outrageous claims that he said yesterday. Channel African News, I'm on Nelensinzi. Seventeen oh six Central African time. You are listening to Africa Digest with myself, Samora Mangesi, standing in for Spumila Lezondi. The date is the 29th of October, twenty eighteen, and in eighteen sixty three today, the International Committee of the Red Cross is founded in Geneva. Just some FYI to keep you going today, so you can brush up on your general knowledge, just in case you are like myself and love to play thirty seconds with your friends. Now, the Constitution is the final uh, arbiter in terms of how many how politicians must behave. This is according to leadership expert Mazwema Jola on the position in which South African Home Affairs Minister Malusi Kikaba currently finds himself in. A sexually ex- explicit video of the minister has been uh, you know, distributed on social media and the minister claims his phone had been hacked and that the video was being used to try and extort money from him. This, however, has not dampened calls by some members of the public, including Majola, that say he should resign. Busi Chimombe reports. Home Affairs Minister Malusi Kikaba's spokesperson, Voyam Kize, says he believes the release of a sexually explicit video that has been circulating online will not negatively impact on the minister's duties. He says due to Kigaba's privacy being invaded by hackers, he won't consider quitting his position. Minister Kigaba is not the first public representative whose head his private life splashed out in public in a manner that does not not in any way impact on his public duties.
I'm not going to mention any names. There'll always be a chance that will be heard. Nobody ever intends for their shower hour to become public viewing. It's not an explanation which washes with leadership expert Dr. Mazwe Majola. Accountability starts with you as a leader. It means you are responsible. Uh, it means being willing to answer for the outcomes resulting from your choices, behaviors, or actions. It's not about blaming other people. You know, I know that it's easy to say, no, this happened because uh, who did this and it was meant for this. That may be true, but unfortunately, there's a cost in leadership. Leadership is very costly. There's a personal sacrifice. So one of the sacrifices is that when things happen like this, when your image is tarnished, your integrity is tarnished, and then you must be accountable as a leader. Machola laments a political culture in the country which does not see politicians taking responsibility for their actions. He says the issue should not be a matter of personal discretion, as the Constitution clearly spells out what ethical leadership entails. Uh, it's fairness, it's justice, uh, it's trustworthiness, it's credibility. All those things, you'll find them there. The Constitution, it's so clear. Uh, what happens to the former minister, Nen? You can just tell that it's a man who was driven by his own core values and principles, you know. So as soon as you are that kind of a person, it's easy for you when you see something or when something has happened and you say, no, I'm going to resign. And offering an apology as Gigaba and other politicians, including ANC Chief Whip Jackson Ntembo, former COSATU Secretary General Zwelinzi Mavavi, and former Deputy Minister of Education Mduduzi Manana Prophet, for various acts of impropriety, Majola says it's not enough. Apology must be accompanied with remorse. You must express remorse. It must be genuine. It must be authentic. It must be sincere. You must admit to your responsibility. Uh, as I'm saying, you must take the ownership and accountability. Um, uh, uh, it's, not, it's not good enough just to apologize. It's a first step. It's a good thing. Great leaders apologize. That's a very good thing. But great leaders take responsibility as well. Ultimately, he says action at the highest levels is required to embed ethical values within the country's leaders. Our president must, uh, must, must model, must show ethical leadership, and he must be seen to be disciplining those, uh, 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 those who are doing uh, wrong things. He must be decisive. Uh, I know that, of course, there will be processes uh, because we live in a constitutional uh, country, uh, but he must be able to be decisive so that public figures and our politicians and our leaders uh, are, are seen to be ethical. And that was leadership expert Dr. Mazwe Majola ending that report by Busi Chimombe in Johannesburg, South Africa. A storm is brewing in Zimbabwe following claims by Prophet Walter Magaya of the Prophetic Healing and Deliverance, otherwise known as PhD, uh, that he has found the cure for HIV and cancer. While Magaya says his drug is working, Zimbabwe's Association for Doctors uh, for Human Rights has issued a 72-hour ultimatum for the Prophet to publicly reverse his claim. Unproven claims of HIV cure may lead to deadly consequences. Zimbabweans have warned. More from our correspondent, Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe.
Zimbabwean prophet Walter Magaya on Sunday announced he has discovered a cure for HIV and cancer, a claim that has shocked the nation. Magaya made the announcement during his prophetic healing and deliverance PhD five-year anniversary commemorations in Harare. So far, Magaya has refused to name the plant and maintained he is waiting for government approval. But on one end, Zimbabwe Association of Doctors for Human Rights has issued a 72-hour ultimatum for the reversal of the claim. Magaya's claim is dangerous and can result in several HIV patients defaulting antiretroviral therapy, Zimbabweans have warned. Dr. Evans Mastara, Secretary General of the Zimbabwe Association for Doctors for Human Rights, had this to say. We wanted to uh, engage the, the ministry and the NACI. Uh, first to uh, hear their, their position, uh, but uh, uh, as an association, we are saying in less than 72 hours, I'm sure he should have come up with, uh, with a statement uh, live on TV or on his identity uh, to refute the claims, that the outrageous claims that he said yesterday. Several prophets from the Sadak region with Shepard Bushiri from Malawi included have so far claimed having discovered cure for HIV and have since fizzled without any success. Dr. Mastara warned PhD followers and many more Zimbabweans against believing claims of HIV cure by anyone, including traditional leaders and prophets. Actually, claims by the prophets is actually outrageous and also borderlines on, 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 on being criminal in the sense that the prophet claimed that the medicine uh, he has found can cure both HIV and, uh, and cancer, but there is no uh, scientific uh, evidence of uh, what he claimed, no peer-reviewed journals or articles, or even an accredited regulatory body that oversaw the research that he claims to have uh, done. And uh, also you have seen that the package of, of what he is saying is the cure is being sold as a, as a herb. And uh, as you know, under uh, how drugs are registered, herbs are not meant for curing any condition. They are just meant as supplements, and they have got a minimal regulation. Following claims by Magaya on Sunday, Zimbabweans are engaged in a serious debate with a number of citizens condemning church leaders who take advantage of their followers. Secretary General of the Union of Development of Apostolic Churches in Zimbabwe, Judah Caesar, Reverend Edson Chakai, condemned Prophet Magaya's move. I think on behalf of Judas Caesar, we think since he proclaimed to be a man of God, he must use some holistic way, which you can say is a Bible or something. And then, with due respect, he must use all protocols. That's because if any medical success must be used with the medical protocol. And then, in medicine, there are some procedures which need to be followed. And then, the people who are competent to announce this thing to the public must do that with all respect so that as a church we earn a, a respect. That's that's our view as Judas Caesar. That's true. Just as Judas Caesar, in several years which we had been implementing some HIV and AIDS program, we had learned that if someone stopped to use ARZ, there is some direct consequence to his life. So we think the people who are proper to say this to the public, they are the medical people. We as church, we support them in whatever job they do. Retired Anglican Bishop Sebastian Bakari is a revered theologian who also took part in some political mediation between retired President Robert Mugabe and the late Morgan Changrai of MDC 
in 2008, Bakare warned prophets such as Magaya and others that they risk prosecution if they continue testing unlicensed drugs on humans. They are playing with people's lives, Bakare said. In that the same Magaya, who once upon a time told this congregation that they should write down their concerns on a piece of paper of which was going to take to Israel, presumably to meet with God and end these human needs on paper to God in Israel but not in Zimbabwe. If that is the same Makaya, I'm really concerned that he is exploiting the religious fanatism that has taken place in Zimbabwe. People in Zimbabwe are desperate. They become so religious that they can accept anything. They can call anybody a pastor or a bishop. Even people are not trained at all who just want to use common language in order to convince people who are desperate. Or people in Zimbabwe, I can say they become very gullible. They can take anything from anybody. You really wonder whether he's not really abusing uh, people's lives. Because some people are going to blindly believe in him. And if they've been taking antiretroviral drugs, they will stop believing in what this guy is saying. And ultimately they will die. In Arare, Zimbabwe, for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kulitranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yawundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. Namibia has reportedly removed a requirement for mining companies to be one fifth owned by black Namibians in order to apply for mining licenses in a bid to lure investment in the southern African country's mining industry. The government introduced preferential conditions in 2015 to empower Namibians in the extractive sectors, such as in minerals exploration and mining, including that previously disadvantaged disadvantaged Namibians make up up at least 20% of the management teams of exploration and mining companies. According to Vestin Malango, Chief Executive Officer of the Chamber of Mines of Namibia, the mining industry is committed to an empowerment framework through the Mining Charter of the Chamber of Mines, which was endorsed by the Mines Ministry. He, however, says a false impression has been created that all empowerment initiatives have been scrapped, which is not true. The media is giving an impression as if Namibia has uh, dropped all empowerment initiatives. That's, that's the impression that is being created, which is far from the truth. What is the truth then, Mr. Malango? Yes, the, the truth the truth is, first of all, there's not yet an empowerment law in Namibia. That's point number one. What we have is uh, uh, government is still working on uh, and is in fact finalizing the, the empowerment framework which was submitted for public consultation uh, two years ago and is almost done. And we are very happy with the progress that we are making with government on that. That's number one. And then second, so, so in other words, 
the industry, first of all, is very much committed to the empowerment uh, in the country because we, we, are, we, we, we appreciate the objectives behind that and what the rationale. So we embrace that to such an extent that uh, even in the absence of the uh, uh, official empowerment framework, which government is now finalizing, the industry has drafted, crafted an empowerment framework in the name of a mining charter. So So are you then saying that, Mr. Malango, there is no policy which has been scrapped? There is, yes, there is no policy which has been scrapped. That's what I'm saying. And and where do you think uh, these media reports are emanating from, uh, Mr. Malango? These uh, media reports are emanating from one simple thing, is that uh, three years, they are emanating from three years ago, uh, the then Minister of Mines, Arch introduced what he calls additional conditions to licenses. And those additional conditions, the Minister of Mines is actually empowered to issue uh, any other condition going, you know, attached to a license. And he came up with, uh, there were proposals to add additional conditions. And those additional conditions were very challenging for exploration licenses because what it meant was the minister was saying, first of all, give me proof that you have done an empowerment deal before I give you a license for exploration. Under the, uh, this well, policy that we are talking about, the management structure of a company applying for an exploration license in Namibia was required to have a minimum 20% representation of black Namibians. Is this still the case? The, the main issue was, not even that, the main issue was uh, you needed to do an empowerment deal whereby you, 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 you made an, an, an equity participation, provided for an equity participation from uh, previously disadvantaged Namibians. Now, the point of the mining industry is that at the exploration stage, you are selling debt. You don't have an amino deposit to talk about. So what are you empowering anybody with? It's at mining license stage where, yes, that is straightforward and the industry has, has, has embraced that and actually the industry is implementing that right now as we speak. Now, in terms of the empowerment policies that are in place in Namibia, Mr. Malonga, would you say these policies are favorable uh, to foreign direct investment in Namibia? They are favorable and, and they are practical at mining license stage. Mining li- when the minister is granting a mining license, perfectly okay. They are, they are very difficult to implement at exploration le- license area because now you are going to look for Namibians who have to buy into debt. You haven't got a deposit. All you have is, is you're going to look for a, a deposit. You may find it, you may not find it. And if you don't find a deposit, everybody loses out. So basically you are saddening uh, uh, individuals with debt. And that's where it became complicated. It was really very unpractical. So the minister has simply made it the condition much easier for companies to move on. I mean, if for instance, uh, the way it is, if there are Namibians that are willing to buy, pay for shareholding into exploration, Surely, that's what our mining charter is talking about. Nothing has disappeared. But if you make it as a condition that if you don't find, uh, if you don't make a, a, an empowerment a deal, therefore there's no exploration license, you are killing exploration license. That is the point the industry has been talking about, and the ministers understood that very well.
And that's Vestin Malango, Chief Executive Officer of the Chamber of Mines of Namibia, on the line from the capital, Vintuk, talking to Kumbero Munzerere. Leader of South Africa's opposition party, the Democratic Alliance, Musi Maimane, says his party will submit a private member's bill to Parliament Committee uh, on private members' legislative proposals and petitions that could ultimately lower the price of electricity. Briefing journalists in Parliament, Maimane says it would allow for the public to buy electricity from independent power producers directly. Zalene Merrington has more. The DA says it will submit a private member's bill that could bring much-needed relief for cash-strapped consumers. According to Maimane, ESCOM's electricity prices have increased by more than 350% over the past 10 years. He says they intend to submit the bill to break ESCOM's monopoly. ESCOM must be split into two companies. The first is a company that focuses on power production. And the second is a distribution business which will allow cities to purchase energy directly from this distribution uh, business or independent power producers. And our call is that we want sustainable green energy for the future of our country. So independent power producers must be allowed to come through. They are never going to come through in a universe where there's a monopoly called ESCO. Private members' bills rarely see the light of day. It is mostly submitted by members of the opposition who do not have the necessary numbers in committees to vote on a matter. Meanwhile, Maimane wouldn't engage on the retraction demanded from him by five Cape Town councillors who resigned from the party and the council last week. This after Maimane wrote in his newsletter that they were implicated in tender irregularities in the Bowman-Gilfillan report that found maladministration in the city. He has since updated the newsletter, omitting the reference to the five councillors. Maimane would only say that his lawyer is handling the matter. My lawyers will respond to those people properly. Let me leave it at that because, uh, you know, people like to claim all sorts of things without any evidence. Suddenly, if somebody wants to resign on the back of the tabled report on Bowman's, let's not talk about other things. There's a report that finds challenges in a municipality and now people want to resign. They must be running away from something. And that there is Musi Maimane, the leader of South Africa's official opposition party, the Democratic Alliance. South Africa, uh, South African safety and security institutions are not rigorously, rigorously monitored, uh, monitoring the work of the terror organizations like ISIS and Al-Qaeda to understand their influence on South Africa. That's according to terrorism researcher Jasmine Opperman. In light of the recent evidence presented at the v- uh, Verulam Family Court, which links 11 suspects to ISIS, many questions are being asked about how South Africa became a target for ISIS and how is the organization recruiting. Prabashini Mudli reports. South Africa having links to ISIS is not a new phenomenon. However, planned attacks in the country are. Jasmine Opperman raises a crucial question. The concerning factor that we are sitting with now in South Africa is that we have an active cell that was willing to execute attacks against specific individuals and change thoughts. Do we have individuals here that have taken action on own initiative or were they targeted by the Islamic State? If the latter is the case, we have crossed the threshold of violent extremism in South Africa, and that's quite disturbing. 
According to Opperman's research, South Africa was never before seen as a target for infiltration by ISIS. There has been thousands of Islamic State propaganda photo material being distributed by its supporters, what I call their fanboys. And we have them all. South Africa has never been mentioned as a target area. Never, except for one communication where it was stated by a fanboy that they need to expand their presence in South Africa, but not related to attack. And what is happening now is saying South Africa has been is suddenly an area of a target for attack. Now that terrorism is at our doorstep, Opperman is adamant that South African intelligence agencies must remain on constant alert. South Africa's vulnerability to terrorism cannot be ignored, be it recruitment, be it financial, or be it now actual attacks being executed. Having the capacity to deal with the matter. I know for a fact, recently as three to four months ago, that certain of our security institutions have not been following the Islamic State on Telegram. You are lost. You will not understand their focus areas. You will not understand their strategy. You will not understand the ideology and how they influence people. In the most recent communication via Telegram between ISIS members, a scary yet real message was delivered just a few days ago. Propaganda material giving step-by-step advice on how to execute attacks by whatever means. Knife attacks, vehicles, bombings, doesn't matter. The last message, doesn't matter how many people you kill. As long as you kill, that is the important factor. It is a message of announcing their presence, irrespective of the casualty figure linked to it. Terrorism is not strange to South Africa. In 2016, the Tulsi twins were arrested and face three counts of contravening the protection of constitutional democracy against terrorism and related activities act. They were allegedly linked to the self-proclaimed ISIS state group and are suspected of planning strikes against the U.S. Embassy and institutions associated with Judaism in South Africa. The case is still not concluded. The case against Saifuddin Dalvecchio and his wife Fatima Patel, who are believed to be involved in the alleged ISIS-linked murder of a British couple, is continuing. Opperman says the courts cannot be sitting with more terrorism cases that remain unresolved. The Tulsi case has not been concluded yet. Clearly the government is struggling to find the evidence that is required to conclude that prosecution. Are we going to sit with a second case now? And with that, allow time to create division, which will play into the hand of terror organizations. We do not have that luxury when it comes to these type of terror organizations. Many citizens are asking, why South Africa? And why now? Senior researcher specializing in terrorism at the Institute for Security Studies, or ISS, Martin Iwi, says terrorist cells remain dormant until an opportunity to attack presents itself. Might be an opportunity shows up but I think that attempt has always been there. They have been terrorist elements in South Africa. So they have been here for some time now. We know ISIS have been in the country, they've been recruiting, they've uh, recruited South Africa who have traveled to Syria. For terrorists to uh, embark on something like this, it's really about the chance. When an opportunity comes up, you will surely find terrorists taking advantage of it. Some of the 11 accused appearing in court for the alleged involvement in the bomb scares in KwaZulu-Natal are as young as 19 and 21 years old. 
Iwi explains how the youth are recruited. He stresses what should be done now by the South African government. If we look at uh, some of the activities of Boko Haram in Nigeria and how they were able to recruit some very young attackers. Now, one is that they either kidnap these individuals. Second is that they pay them. If we look at what's happening in other countries, which I think should be of interest to us, Nigeria, Mali, Kenya, we have to look at these various links. I think the security agencies need to be on more alert. They need to beef up intelligence to make sure that every suspicious corner of the country is being watched and monitored. While terrorist activities are fairly new to South Africa, based on research by industry experts, cells are now operating within our borders. The case against the 11 accused will continue in the Verulam Family Court tomorrow. I'm Prabhashni Mudli for SABC News in Durban. Right now, let's find out what is happening in our news headlines. Hundreds of people, majority of them youths, have been marching on the streets of Cameroon's economy capital, Dola, asking President Paul Bear to step down immediately. A woman suicide bomber blew herself up near police vehicles in the center of the Tunisian capital, injuring nine people. And Algeria's frail president, Abdelaziz Bouteflika, in power since 1999, will stand for a fifth term at elections next year. Channel Africa News, I am Onilin Sinzi. Hi, I'm Pule Mulebazi, the presenter of the Albinism Report, a program that demystifies myths and mysticism on albinism, highlighting challenges and achievements of people with albinism. Tune into the Albinism Report on the following times, Monday 5 past 9 in the morning to quarter to 10 Central African time and from 5 past 10 to quarter to 11 Central African time. Tuesday at 5 past 2 in the morning to quarter to 3 Central African time. The Albinism Report, an enlightened narrative with me, Ule Mulebati, on Channel Africa from an African perspective. Now, South Africa's government, together with various civil society organizations, will host a gender-based violence summit later this week in its capital of Pretoria. With the ongoing trial of televangelist Nigerian pastor Timothy Omotoso, we speak to Michael Swain, executive director of non-governmental organization Freedom of Religion South Africa, about the role of religious groups in addressing gender-based violence. Gender-based violence is a very serious issue in South Africa, and Clearly, it's one that has been highlighted, I think, by the, the uh, case of Timothy Amatoso and the trial that's currently taking place. And this, I think, shows the you know, se- severity of it, in a sense. And I believe that one of the things that we should be looking at and doing is to make sure that people understand, particularly when we're talking about the freedom of religion issues, that freedom of religion has never been and will never be uh, a reason or an excuse to cover up a crime. And it is, in fact, almost doubly reprehensible when people stand in the office of, say, a pastor 
and they are committing what is essentially uh, crimes of violence, gender-based crimes of violence. And I think that is something which definitely um, the, the religious community itself needs to take a very strong stance against. What do you make of, of, of the current and ongoing uh, um, Omotosha case? Again, what we're seeing in this case is that justice is actually being served. In other words, uh, Timothy Omotosha committed these crimes supposedly uh, because you know God spoke to him or whatever it may be. But the fact of the matter is, is that that cannot be a shield. So what we have always said as Freedom of Religion South Africa for SA is that the law itself is something which should be exercised and strongly enforced by the state. And many times when these situations have happened, where the state has actually intervened, where people have been arrested for these crimes, where due process and trial is taking place, then assuming that uh, Timothy Ontoza is found guilty by due process, then obviously sentencing is something when the, the fact that he was claiming to be a pastor and using undue influence uh, to commit gender-based violence crimes uh, should come into play in terms of the severity of that sentence. Because there's no doubt that uh, an, an example, I think, needs to be made and, and a clear message sent out that you cannot cover up this type of crime and claim in some way that freedom of religion protects and covers you. Do you think that churches are, to a certain extent, uh, really exploiting people's insecurities, especially that of women and children? I think that would be a very broad generalization and probably quite a dangerous one because the vast majority of churches are actually deeply involved in and concerned with the well-being of their communities. And they look after the most weak and the most vulnerable, which in this case is women and children. So I think that it's a dangerous generalization to try and paint the whole of the religious community with that brush. However, I do think that it is time for the religious community particularly to begin to speak out perhaps more vocally against these issues. And I know that many churches are actually doing so. And we also have been encouraged by the fact that there is currently in process the development of a code of conduct by the South African Commission for Religious Rights and Freedoms, uh, who actually developed the Religious Freedom Charter. And they're developing a code of conduct which has already been authorized and mandated by senior leadership levels from throughout the uh, religious, particularly the Christian community. And this will certainly give a very good sense of the responsibilities and the the ethics, for want of a better word, that actually correspond with the rights to religious freedom so that people can know what they can and cannot expect uh, from the religious community. What role should, in fact, uh, religious groups be playing um, in terms of addressing this issue of gender-based violence? I think certainly the religious community, as I said, should speak out strongly against this, particularly because you are dealing with people or talking about people who are the weakest and the most vulnerable. And they should be doubly vocal if people who are doing so at least purport to be part of the religious community. And obviously the other role which uh, the religious community has played historically and always will play is to comfort the victims and to, and, and to help the victims to get through what is obviously deeply traumatic experiences. The time is now 17.38. You're still listening to Channel Africa. Africa Digest, my, now, my name is Samora Mangesi, standing in for Spumilele. Zondi. I hope that you are enjoying the show so far and if you are, you can of course get in contact with us and let us know using our WhatsApp number which is 763-003327 that is 763-003327 and if you're outside of the South African borders be sure to use that international dialing code which is plus two seven as well as on Twitter we are at Channel Africa 
one. Also, send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za and uh, we'll be sure to read your emails live on the radio to the rest of Africa. So those are the contact details that you need in order to get in contact with us. Be sure to use them, please, and uh, we'll make sure to chat back to you. But going back to today in history, the date is the 29th of uh, October 2018, and there are only 63 days left in the year. Wow, can you believe only 63 days are left in the year? So what happened today in history? Let's take a look at uh, 1956. During the uh, Suez Canal crisis, Israel launches an invasion of, the e- of Egypt's uh, Sinai Peninsula. As well as in 1972, Palestinian guerrillas attack, uh, they hijack German airliner and gain release of three people seized in massacre at Munich Olympics. Now, it's important to empower women with knowledge regarding lowering their cancer and health risk and recognizing warning signs. This has been the message of the Cancer Association of South Africa, otherwise known as cancer, uh, during October, which is dubbed Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Uh, Breast cancer constitutes 27% of all cancers in women and will affect and will affect 1 in 28 South Africans in their lifetime. For more on this issue, here's cancer's Professor Michael Herbst. We don't have all the cases reported to the National Cancer Registry. But in 2014, just over 8,250 women were diagnosed with breast cancer. And that is a a, a huge total. Really, it's, it's of great concern that so many women are diagnosed with breast cancer. That's an alarming figure, definitely. Now, I am just wondering, at what point were these women diagnosed? Do they go voluntarily or it's when things have really gotten bad? I'm just trying to gauge if are women heeding the call to get screened early in South Africa? You know, unfortunately, we have two very specific scenarios in South Africa. We have uh, individuals who have health insurance. They will go for regularly mammograms every year. And with them, there is no problem because there's early diagnosis, early treatment. But we must remember that about 80% of the population are dependent on the public health system. And we know that access is a problem. We also know that many people are sent away from clinics because it would appear that the staff don't really appreciate or understand the implications. So... In the public health sector, we are not getting the same response and very often women are diagnosed rather late. And that is so disturbing because at late diagnosis, treatment is not always that successful. Now, let's talk about the most recognizable warning signs of breast cancer. Is it always what we generally know about? I mean, feeling the presence of a lump around the breast. I say to women, know your body. And you can only know your body if you do breast self-examinations regularly every month. And anything that is different today than it was last month when you did your breast self-exam, those are the things of concern. And anything that is different should be reported to your doctor. But let's look at the major ones. Feeling the breast and one feels a lump or a thickening in any area of the breast. 
that is a very important sign. Then a change in the shape of the nipple. Any discharge from the nipple? Is there any rash on the skin? Is the one breast all of a sudden larger than the other one? Does the one nipple all of a sudden hang lower than the other one? Is there a change in the skin that it looks like an orange peel? Is there all of a sudden a more warm feeling in one breast as compared to the other one? Those are the most important ones that people should be looking out. And only if one does a breast self-exam regularly every month is it easy to recognize any of the changes because they become sort of a habit and you understand and you know your body and you spot any changes very quickly. Now, Professor, I don't know if it's me, but I feel like we often associate breast cancer with older women. Is this true? Is it age-dependent? Are some women most at risk or all of us are at risk? A very, very important question that you're asking now. Do you know that in the developed world, they have raised the age for going for regular mammograms to age 45? We say age 40. And if you have a family history or you are at higher risk of breast cancer, you should start going at a much earlier age already. Now, age, yes, we know that uh, as we age, there is a tendency up to about age 60 that the incidence of breast cancer increases. But after age 60, there is again a slight decline in the number of uh, individuals diagnosed with breast cancer. So yes, age to a certain extent plays a role, but the important thing is to know one's breasts and not to think it is age-related. I only need to worry about this when I'm 50 years old. Earlier on, you mentioned the fact that late detection is one of the challenges we are facing as a country because then at that stage, it makes treatment difficult or more complicated. Now, let's talk about once you are diagnosed with breast cancer as early as possible. What does the treatment entail for somebody who's just been diagnosed with breast cancer and wondering what's the next step? What I'm going to say now doesn't apply to every woman. Surgery is definitely a certain option and surgery in breast cancer doesn't mean that the breast has to be removed. The surgery can be as small as just a lumpectomy where a small incision is made and the lump that appears in the breast is removed. And the time is now 17.46 Central African time. It's time for us to find out what's happening with our money with Tracy Boomgaard. Thank you, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa and German Chancellor Angela Merkel are expected to hold bilateral talks in Berlin. Ramaphosa, who arrived in the German capital earlier, is expected to attend the G20 Africa Summit on Tuesday. The meeting is set to centre around investment in South Africa. Mbali Tatani reports. DG for Treasury Dondo Mukhojane says as they meet with the Germany Chancellor, they would like to see more investments from the European giant. It's important that we continue passing the message on that South Africa is open for investment. Getting support from international players like Germany will be very important. I can imagine 
the meeting will center around that. How do we partner further with Germany in advancing our own economies and the interests of South Africa? The focus is expected to shift to the African continent with prospects of investments top on the agenda. South Africa's main opposition party leader, the Democratic Alliance's Musi Maimani, says his party will submit a private member's bill to Parliament's private members' legislative proposals and petitions that could ultimately lead to the lowering of the price of electricity. Briefing journalists at Parliament, Maimani says the bill aims to end Eskom's monopoly. He says they want the power utility to be split in two to facilitate direct purchase from independent power producers. ESCOM must be split into two companies. The first is a company that focuses on power production. And the second is a distribution business which will allow cities to purchase energy directly from this distribution uh, business or independent power producers. South African telecommunications company MTN says its debut stock market listing in Nigeria may slip because it needs to work on the format for the share sale. MTN says it wants to honour its obligation to the Nigerian government to list its shares in the West African country. It added that it was also engaging with Nigeria to resolve a $10 billion demand from the authorities there. Egypt's supply ministry has announced that the country has enough sugar reserves to last for five months. Ministry spokesman Ahmed Kamal says sugar is available in local markets and there is no problems with supply. U.S. President Donald Trump says he and Brazil's president-elect Jair Bolsonaro have agreed that their countries will work closely together, especially on trade and military. Trump says they had a very good conversation when he phoned Bolsonaro to congratulate him on his election victory. The BBC's Katie Watson reports. The president-elect has been a congressman for nearly 30 years, but Mr Bolsonaro campaigned as a political outsider and a clean one, untainted by corruption scandals. He wants to cut red tape, privatise business and loosen environmental restrictions in the Amazon to encourage mining and ranching. Jair Bolsonaro also wants to tackle crime by loosening gun laws and making it easier to shoot criminals. And those are just some of his controversial plans. His critics fear he'll divide this country rather than unite it. The US dollar's trading at 10.61 Botswana Pula and at 11.52 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, the US dollar's trading at 3.65 Brazilian Hail, at 65.61 Russian Ruble, at 72.84 Indian Rupee, at 6.95 Chinese Yuan, and at 14.58 to the South African Rand. It's also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and at 87 cents to the euro. In commodities, gold is trading at $1,230 and platinum at $835 an ounce, while the price of Brent crude oil is at $77.09 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. Now let's find out what's happening in the world of sport with Musburi Makura.
Good evening, sports fans. South African marathon runner Harda Stain is leaving for New York tomorrow. That is the 30th of October to take part in one of the greatest marathon. That is the New York City Marathon. Now, the marathon takes place this Sunday, the 4th of November. The women's elite field boasts the reigning New York City, the Boston, as well as London marathon champions, in addition to three-time champion Merikitani of Kenya. Now, Stain admits that this marathon is out of her comfort zone, but she is hoping for a top 15 finish. So the marathon for me is um, out of my comfort zone. I'm not trying to win in, in a sense that I, that I would be looking for in ultramarathons. But for me, it's also great to be in that position because there's a lot that I can learn from them. So I think on a good day, um, I can be looking at hopefully uh, 15, top 15. Um, it is mar- the New York marathon is quite tough. So normally the times aren't as quick as, let's say, Berlin or Berlin. Um, but yes, I think on a good day I can be looking at the teeth and anything better than that obviously would be a big bonus for me. On to tennis news, South Africa's Kevin Anderson has climbed up two places to sixth in today's ATP rankings after sealing a berth at the 12 finals following his title in Vienna. At the weekend, Anderson became the first South African singles player in over two decades to qualify for the end-of-season event with his victory over Kian Nishikori in Sunday's final. Meanwhile, Rafael Nadal's position at the top will come under threat at this week's Paris Masters from Novak Djokovic, who arrives on an 18-match winning streak after wins in Cincinnati, the U.S. Open, as well as the Shanghai Masters. At the same time, Roger Federer is still third after his 99th career title at Basel, while runner-up Marius Koppel of Romania soared to a career-high 60th position after his performance at uh, the Basel Open. In the women's section, Ukraine's Elena Siftolina has jumped three places to fourth in the latest world rankings released today after claiming the biggest title of, he, of her career at the season end. WTA finals in Singapore. Seftolina overcame American Sloane Stevens in three sets in Sunday's final and moves above US Open champion Naomi Osaka. At the same time, Petra Kivtova dropped two spots to seventh after she lost all three of her round-robin matches in Singapore. On to Rugby News, Springboks women's team coach Stanley Rubenheimer says it is important to have experienced leadership in his 28-woman squad for their four-match tour of, uh, of Europe. Now, Rubenheimer was appointed, or rather has appointed, the experienced Noli Cindy Soboy to lead the side that will play their first international in four years. Boy also led the SA select side to the United Kingdom last year. I think so. I think it's very important, uh, especially taking into account that uh, 2014 last was our last major international. And uh, to have those experience to fall on is, is uh, and that was part of my thinking of putting the squad together, is to get a bit of experience going uh, instead of just going with a bunch of youngsters. And, and, and use the time to build a squad. I think it's important for us not just to build, but also to be successful on the field. Now, Ruben Heimer says the tour will be a fact-finding mission while also measuring the standard of women's rugby in the country. Against some of the top teams in the world, the Springbok women's team will play against UK Armed Forces in London this Friday, followed by a match against Wales at Cardiff Arms Park on the 10th of November. They will then play Spain in Villa Johosa on the 17th of November before ending their tour against Italy in Prato on the 25th of November.
I think it's really going to take some time to really digest everything that's uh, happened today. But um, some of the, uh, I'm just really, really proud. Like I was just, just now, just with my engineers. Look, four years out of the international, my first experience of taking a team overseas, uh, Wales played in the previous World Cup, actual ways. Spain and Italy played in the previous World Cup. They look very good. I don't know how good our girls are at international stage, and this is also part of this whole process. Fact-finding, understanding, maybe our standards would then be tested there and see what's our deficiencies, where we need to work on. So it's, it's, a, it's a tour that we hope to be successful, but also a, a tour where we go and find out what we need to do to be successful. Zai Sports News at the sound back with more sports news just before 8 p.m. Central African time. This is Africa Digest. that is how we wrap up Africa Digest today. From myself, Samora Mangesi, producer Ronald Piri, technical producer Tumelu Mukwena, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you so much for listening. For any comments on our show, you can send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or send us a WhatsApp 763003327. If you're outside of the South African borders, be sure to use that international dialing code plus 27. You can tweet us. You can also tweet us at Channel Africa 1. Taking us to the top of the hour is Dobe Nahore with Kokpa.